Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program. My name is Jeff, and with me is our co-host, Brian. Hey, good morning, Brian. How are you doing today? Hey, good morning, Jeff. Looking forward to uh, wrapping up this series. Yep. As Brian indicates, uh, we are indeed at the end of a series on what is commonly called Calvinism. This is the final installment of this podcast series. So if you're hearing us for the very first time, we would definitely encourage you to go back to the uh, the first one in the series and uh, listen to all of them leading up to this one. Uh, in this one, we are calling it the Perseverance of the Saints, which is the uh, fifth aspect of Calvinism. Uh, just as a really quick recap, uh, the first lesson we had, we learned about a man who lived in the 5th century by the name of Augustine. He took the position that mankind is totally depraved, meaning totally incapable of doing absolutely anything at all that's good, of doing anything that would or could contribute to his salvation. He argued that salvation uh, is to be found only in the exclusive power of God's you know, sovereign, unmerited grace. That was Augustine, 5th century. These doctrines uh, also happen to be uh, embraced and promoted by John Calvin, and hence the term Calvinism, uh, starting in the 1500s. And they're often associated with the acronym often called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which stands for the five points, or the five main aspects of Calvinism. Uh, known as total inherited depravity, unconditional election or predestination, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So in our first four lessons, uh, we've talked about the, uh, the first four uh, aspects of TULIP, which brings us to the fifth and final aspect, P, for perseverance of the saints. So, uh, Brian, any other introductory comments before we get started? Yeah, just a couple quick things. You know, one is we've mentioned a time or two during this series that, you know, the reason why this is a good subject to study is that this false doctrine has permeated almost every major religion in the world today. So whether you're a member of a Baptist church, Catholic church, community church, this idea of man is born in sin, uh, man is born corrupted, man is in, uh, born incapable of doing good, uh, these are all tenets and principles that you will often hear in the teaching of, like I say, almost every major religion in the world. And so it's so important to understand it so that you can recognize this error. And then the second thing is, we can all imagine how difficult it would be to understand every false doctrine out there. And so, you know, there is a general principle that says, if you study God's Word and you know the truth, then it becomes easier to recognize error. It becomes easier to recognize something that's contrary to God's word. So just want to make sure everybody understands we're not advocating that we go out and learn every false doctrine out there. It'd be really kind of impossible. However, when you have something major like this, it's important to understand it at a base level so that once again, you can recognize this error. Uh, and then just want to encourage everybody, learn the truth so that regardless of the false doctrine it is, you'll more easily recognize it as false. 
Yeah, very good points. The only other one I might add uh, is that some people may, or some uh, religious groups may believe some, or well, they may believe all aspects of uh, Calvinism. Others may believe, you know, only some. Uh, this last aspect, uh, I think a lot of religious groups believe, even though they might not subscribe to full Calvinism, number one. And number two, uh, perseverance of the saints might be a little obscure in terms of its nomenclature, but once saved, always saved is another phrase that might be more commonly known uh, by our listeners. So I, I thought I'd throw that out there as well before, as we get started. Yeah, that's a really good point, uh, because in our first uh, introductory episode, we were talking about John Wesley, <clears throat> excuse me, and, uh, you know, how the, the Arminians and today we know of as Presbyterians, they believed in total inherited depravity, but to your point, did not believe in the other four. And so that's exactly right. There's some who just, you know, embrace certain tenets of it. So when we talk about this last tenet, perseverance of the saints, let's kind of look at some of the quotes uh, from a man by the name of J. Van Baren. He wrote uh, a creed, if you will, called the Five Points of Calvinism. And so let's look at some of the quotes from him that really kind of state the belief and teaching in this area. So here he says, there is one passage in scripture which points out this truth clearly. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, remember it? After the apostle had spoken much of the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection in him, Paul declares, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He goes on to say, that is it. That is the perseverance of the saints. And though, and though the word perseverance is used only once in the Bible, the idea is found throughout Scripture, including that passage in 1 Corinthians 15. So I think we would all agree that really the only thing that he says, you know, that is clear, if you will, in this verse is that this is a, you know, God's giving a command here through the Holy Spirit to persevere. Uh, this isn't really a statement that they will persevere or that they can only persevere through God's power, as he's asserting. And we'll see more later when we get into what the Bible teaches where, where this is true. Uh, another quote here from him, May I state, first of all, that the Word of God throughout emphasizes that the saints must persevere. They must be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That is the calling of the church of Christ. It is our calling. Many passages teach this truth. In Revelation 3.11, to the church of Philadelphia, Christ says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. In Philippians 2.12, we read, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, you know, he does state actual passages from the Bible, but a question we must ha ask ourselves are, is this saying that God causes the elect to persevere? Um, or are they simply admonitions to persevere? And so, you know, when you think about working out your own salvation, that sounds like an effort we have to make, right? So anyhow, I just want our listeners to consider that as we go through this. And then the final quote here in this section, the saint cannot fall because his perseveration rests not on his own act, but on the power of the Almighty God. So 
<clears throat> we can kind of see from that quote like where he's going and, and Calvinists go uh, with these types of statements. Jeff? Yeah, good point. Now we've got some other quotes, and before I, I give this next quote, I need to give just a tiny little bit of background. You know, we talk about Calvinism, Calvinists, etc., and the five points of tulip. So there is a corresponding uh, counter doctrine or, or uh, op opposing doctrine or whatever term you want to use called Arminianism that in a, in a small nutshell, at least when it comes to the topic we're talking about today, uh, asserts that this perseverance certainly is something that Christians should try to do, but it is not something that is guaranteed that indeed once saved, always saved is false that you can fall away, you can lose your salvation. And so that's the Arminian position, which he references in uh, the quote I'm, I'm just about to give you here. So the quote says, of course, the Arminian claims the support of Scripture. When one reads the passages, which he quotes, one would begin to think that indeed the Arminian has proved his point from the Bible. I cannot possibly mention all the passages which are quoted, there are certain representative ones, however, or nonetheless, which we must consider. One of them is from Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which says, It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost to have tasted or and have tasted the word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and bring him to an open shame. He goes on to say that the text speaks of one unconverted, quote, end quote, and not one who has fallen from grace. Now, that's an interesting perspective, in my opinion, on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, um, because if you notice, go back and, and look at the words, now, this is a person who was enlightened, tastes salvation, had a spiritual gift, knew God's word, yet fell away from something and had to repent again. It, it, doesn't that, ver, uh, that terminology uh, you know, strongly indicate that they had been saved, that they had been converted and were now you know, no longer among the saved, which is what we would assert a proper interpretation of the passages. Now, here's another quote. Uh, another passage, which, again, the Arminians, uh, and we would offer, uh, another passage is Romans 11, 17, 21, and 22. For if some of the branches were broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, well... Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now, their answer or interpretation of this passage goes on, quote, not individual saints are cut off from the living tree, which is Christ, but disobedient generations, 
which were formerly called church, are cut off. And so basically they're referring to, I guess, groups of people as opposed to individuals. But, I mean, here's the question. If you go back and read the passage, does God save generations or does he save individuals? Did God destroy Israelites who obeyed him or those who disobeyed them? Did he destroy the whole generation or just those individuals who were unbelieving? And hence, if also, if you go back to the passage, you know, the whole warning that, you know, Paul is giving the Romans uh, is telling them to be not high-minded, but fear. Take heed, lest he not spare, uh, also spare not thee. Um, you know, behold the kindness and severity of God. Uh, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. Again, is this a generational thing or a group of people or a class of people or is it or is it individuals? We would assert it is individuals. So here comes another quote. We read again in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. Holding faith and good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now they go on to, to say, you know, those men had put on a show of piety and faith. It is this pretended faith that they made shipwreck. They departed. This is not a falling away of saints, but an exposing of hypocrisy. Now, it's an interesting uh, twist on, on the scripture, or on that, on that particular scripture, because I guess the assertion is Hymenaeus and Alexander never were saved, never were Christians. Um, and yet, in that specific context, you know, Paul is telling Timothy, their problem is that they learn not to blaspheme. Not that, oh, yeah, you need to talk to them, you need to convert them, or need to convince them that they need, that they need to be converted. They need to be saved. No, no, their problem was blasphemy. You know, not basic fundamental obedience of becoming a Christian. Again, individuals falling away. Uh, falling away, which is an interesting concept. Uh, something they had, but which they fell away from. And then in the final quote we've got here, very briefly. What would you say of these texts? In the first place, these passages cannot mean there is a falling away of saints. Whatever meaning they have, they cannot mean that. Otherwise, some texts would conflict with and contradict hundreds of other passages of Scripture. And Scripture does not contradict itself. Well, certainly we would agree that Scripture does not contradict itself. But the, the challenge is reconciling all these passages together, because indeed, if you focus exclusively on some, they'll lead you to one conclusion. If you focus exclusively on others, they could lead you to a different conclusion. You have to bring them all together, uh, as we will talk a, a little bit later on in our uh, discussion today. Brian, any uh, any thoughts on, on those quotes? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We talked about this in a previous podcast where, you know, all of these tenets stand or fall together. So, you know, you can kind of see how they have to go this direction. If, for instance, uh, like in our last podcast, we were talking about irresistible grace, right? Being irresistibly drawn in against your own will. Uh, and so if that's the case, then and you are one of God's elect, 
then almost you kind of logically have to go this route, right? Where you can't possibly fall if you're elect and you're irresistibly drawn to God. Good point. Well, and it also starts putting your uh, your belief or this position in tension with, as they even admitted in one of the quotes I gave a few moments ago, a lot of verses that talk about if and conditionality and mentioning individuals who did fall away and warnings, and it just goes on and on and on. Um, and, you know, given that tension, you either have to back up and question your original assumptions, like total inherited depravity, that got you to where you were, or you have to sort of press on and force your view into these verses and make them somehow say something different than what they're really saying. Yeah. Unfortunately. I like that's a good way to put it. They have to force their view into the verses. That's exactly right. And, you know, there are there are several proof texts. I mean, in addition to these passages that we just looked at where they once again have to twist, you know, the scriptures to to fit their beliefs. Uh, there's a few others we want to go through here. And so here that you will see the Calvinist exclaims, quote, the truth of perseverance of the saints is a truth so plainly scriptural that one wonders how anyone could question it. And I think that's an interesting quote, Jeff, because it's like, well, okay, um, you're saying it's a plain scriptural truth, but let's see if what the Bible says does actually match up with that. Here's another quote. In Philippians 1.6, the apostle states, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. They go on to say there are no ifs, no buts, no conditions. He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He preserves and we preserve. Another quote. Here is another passage from John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Uh, can there be anything clearer than that, they say? Hear this, and they shall never perish. So, you know, taking a quote from Jesus and asserting that this proves that, once again, they would persevere. Now, if you look at that passage on the surface and you didn't consider it in the context of what Jesus is talking about, you might draw that conclusion. But notice here... This passage is speaking of those who hear and follow. Notice, my sheep hear my voice. Well, if you're hearing, that means you're willingly taking in what's being said. And notice Jesus says, and they follow me. That says choice. And so what they want to focus on is the fact that no one can take them from Jesus. Well, that's actually true. When we accept the gospel and we obey it, for instance, and are baptized for the remission of our sins. We are saved. The Bible tells us that our sins are forgiven. And nobody can change that. God is more powerful. God will preserve the faithful Christian until the end, if you will. So that's what's being said here, not that against their own will or in some miraculous way, God will persevere them or cause them to persevere. Uh, here's another quote in 2 Timothy 1.12 we read, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 
They go on to say, notice how Paul speaks. He does not say, I am persuaded that I am able to keep that which I have received until that day. But he is able. That is God who is greater than all. He keeps us in the way of life. He preserves the saints so that they are assured that they shall persevere. Now, once again, that might sound convincing if you believe what's being said or asserted by them. But, you know, this passage is actually pretty simple. It's just stating that God keeps his promise. Now, do we believe if Paul stops committing unto him that he wouldn't be lost? I think what we'll be able to point out very clearly from the Bible when we get into the section on what the Bible says is that we can fall. We can lose our salvation. Uh, so let's look at one more quote here. It says, or again, read in Romans 8, 29 and 30, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified them, he also glorified. They go on to say, you notice God did not tell his church that he maybe will glorify them, conditioned upon their own action, but God declares your final salvation is already an accomplished fact. Well, first off, that quote's not found in the Bible. Your salvation is already an accomplished fact. That's, the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, they go on to say, God foreknew, God justified, God glorified, according to the eternal counsel of God that stands, we are preserved by our God. So here, Paul is viewing the whole process of redemption as already being accomplished to, to give those saints hope. That's what hope is all about. So we, we can't separate this from verse 28 before that. You know, this is the promise for those who love God and those who quit loving God. It's, it's a choice. So anyhow, Jeff, just a few quotes would show once again how they claim it's teaching one thing, but when you really examine it more closely, we see it's actually not teaching what they assert. Exactly. So in some of the uh, quotations that we've found of their material, uh, there actually are what appear to be some contradictions uh, within their own material. Uh, here, here's a quote, for instance. There are two terms in our theme, perseverance and saints. We must understand them clearly. First of all, there's the term saints. And in the second place, there's the term perseverance. By this we mean, uh, in terms of perseverance, that one continues in the state of holiness and righteousness to which he has been elevated through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he continues in this state through all of his way through the valley of the shadow of death until he's brought finally to glory. Now, did you catch that for a second? When they define perseverance as one who continues in the state of holiness and righteousness, uh, further on, one who continues in this state through all of his way through the valley of shadow of death. So he's brought finally to glory. Now, interestingly enough, we would agree that is what it means to persevere, that you continue. But the question is, is that voluntary, your choice, or is it involuntary? Again, back to the predestination concept. Of course, we would say it's voluntary. So even in their definition of perseverance indicates that need to continue. Uh, here's another quote. Now consider again our confessions, and then he makes reference to the canons of Dort, D-O-R-D-T, Articles 6 and 7, 
which I guess state, but God, who is rich in mercy, according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not wholly withdraw the Holy Spirit from his own people, even in their melancholy falls, nor suffers them to proceed so far as to lose the grace of adoption and forfeit the state of justification, or to commit the sin unto death, nor does he permit them to be totally deserted and to plunge themselves into everlasting destruction. Now, if, if, if you wrap your, try to wrap your head around that particular quotation, evidently the Holy Spirit is somehow miraculously keeping people to some degree restrained from proceeding beyond a certain point, which I think is kind of interesting. So they can fall, they can commit sins just short of unto death. You know, they they can uh, abandon their faith to the point where it's mostly deserted. And if they can do that, then honestly, how is that continuing in holiness? Seems to be a contradiction. Here's another quote. For in the first place, in these falls, he preserves them in the incorruptible seed of regeneration from perishing. He preserves them from being totally lost. And again, by his word and spirit, and certainly and effectually renews them to repentance, to sincere and godly sorrow for their sins, that they may seek and obtain remission in the blood of the mediator, may again experience the favor of a reconciled God through faith, adore his mercies, and henceforth more diligently work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And reading through that, my mind just starts to uh, short circuit. You know, they talk about the incorruptible seed of regeneration. Well, you know, referring to the word of God. But, you know, that word is not, you know, preserved by itself. It's the application of the word. And so if I understand what they're saying, you know, a person could be mostly lost, need to repent, need to sorrow for their sins, need to seek remission, must work out their own salvation, and God will miraculously step in at some point later and enable them to do that. Well, not only enable them to do that, but force them to do that? Do you have to see a problem with that? I mean, I I do uh, that they can you know go through this you know process, which you know basically leaves them as sinners lost, needing repentance, uh, and that's been their choice. But God will override their choice. Sounds contradictory to me. Uh, another quote: Hence, we must stand one hundred percent in the truth of our reformed confessions both with respect to the atonement and the preaching. And if we have already departed from that, we must return and forsake what is false. Well, see, they're within their own uh, quotation. They're talking about the need to be, you know, compliant with their own confessions or their own, uh, um, you know, teachings, that if they have departed from that, they need to return and forsake what is false. Well, it's... Again, self-contradictory, seemingly. And one final quote, Brian, and then I'll turn it over to you. Once more, we do not teach that genuine believers are secure from backsliding, 
But if they do become unwatchful and prayerless, they may fall for a time into temptations and sins and loss of hope and comfort, which may cause them much misery and shame, and out of which is a and out of which a covenant-keeping God will, notice this, will recover them by sharp chastisements and deep contrition. And so, uh, again, they would assert a person can indeed, under their doctrine, can backslide, can become unwatchful, can become powerless, can fall, can fall into sin. And again, that God will recover them. It's up to God to override their choices. Certainly seems, again, contradictory. Brian, any other uh, thoughts on those uh, quotations that kind of hurt my head? Yeah, you know, I, I it's kind of interesting how they once again almost have to kind of go this direction because they're aware, as we're going to see here in a moment, that there are many passages in the Bible that talk about we can fall. What I would challenge them to do is show any examples of where God will recover them or God did recover people who fell against their own will, as you were talking about. Uh, there are no passages that talk about God doing that. And if that was an attribute of God, would that not be in the scriptures? Uh, where we have some examples of these people who fell away, but yet because God had chosen them and they were elect, that he's going to force them into repentance? Uh, surely, right, we would see that if that were actually true. Good point. All right, let's go ahead and shift gears now and, and talk about, well, what does the Bible say? And kind of compare it to their false teaching. Now, one thing we know is the Bible is definitely replete with warnings of the possibility of Christians losing their souls and actually give names, like in the case of Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, where it talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus. So we also see an example of this from Simon, uh, the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. And, you know, he was somebody who apparently obeyed the gospel and he became a Christian. And, you know, he noticed that Peter and the apostles had spiritual gifts. They were able to perform miracles. And he was deceiving people as a sorcerer, making it seem as if he could do that. And when he noticed that they were able to really do that in Acts chapter 8, he wanted to purchase this ability with money. And Peter tells him in Acts 8, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. And so, you know, the question really arises here is that why would Peter threaten Simon with condemnation when or if Simon was incapable of so sinning as to lose his own soul. So it's a question we have to ask ourselves. You know, God proclaimed to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 24, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, he shall die. Now, I think this is a very powerful passage because God is asking, if you have somebody who's righteous and he turns away and commits wickedness, 
shall he live? That was a question that God was asking Judah at the time because they had fallen into sin and they were trying to say, if you look at the very first section uh, there in Acts chapter 18, that they were simply suffering because their ancestors sinned. It wasn't because of their own sin and God saying, no, if somebody who's righteous turns away and does wicked, shall he live? And not only that, you notice he says that all the righteousness which they had done, it's not going to be remembered. In fact, they're going to spiritually die because, once again, they turned from the Lord. We have other examples. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jeff, you want to read for us uh, a similar thought over in Luke chapter 8, verses 12 and 13? Okay. Those by the wayside, of course, the, the context is the uh, parable of the sower. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. So would the Calvinists assert that Satan was more powerful than the Holy Spirit? They believed for a while, but did not persevere? I like how in 2 Peter 1 there, it talks about, be even more diligent to make your call in the election. Sure, it's putting the responsibility on us. In fact, it says, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. If we do what God commands us to do, we will not stumble. And so, you know, these are questions we have to ask. We have to look at these passages and once again, compare them to what they're asserting. And, you know, in essence, they'd have to be saying, as we saw there in Luke chapter 8, that Satan was more powerful than the Holy Spirit. Looking at Romans chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity. But to, toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So this grafting, and then we kind of referenced you know, how they twisted part of a, pass, a similar passage to this to say, God grafted them back in almost unconditionally or because they were the elect. But that really contradicts what's said there in verse 22, that if you continue in his goodness, you'll be grafted in. Otherwise, you will also be cut off, it says. So, you know, this to me it is really another good passage that just makes it very clear. It is on us. And, you know, think about how really it would make God an unjust God if he had to force you to be obedient again, or to, if you've fallen away, come back to him. In essence, you're a robot now, right? It just makes no sense, and it makes him unjust. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, Paul said, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So once again, Paul is understanding and conveying that it's on him, so to speak, to do these things. Um, Jeff, how about Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, if you could read that for us. Okay. So the writer starts off by saying, Beware, brethren, 
lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Another passage, Jeff, right, that says it's all on us, right? It's not based on some miraculous intervention. Well, exactly. And, and you know, you say all on us, and, and in a way that is very true. And yet still, you know, we do have assistance from God through, you know, reading his word and prayer and fellow Christians helping us. But at the end of the day, it's not that God will miraculously override or force us to a state of repentance. Uh, but it is ultimately up to us to decide, exercise our free will to come back. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Thanks for bringing that up. Because, you know, we have, for instance, church discipline, and it's not to humiliate people. It's to try to get them to repent. We have fellow Christians, as you pointed out, that are to edify us and encourage us to do what is right. Uh, but yes, it's it's not based on some miraculous you know, uh, intervention on God's part where we are dragged kicking and screaming, like wanting to remain in that sin. (laughs) But God's saying, nope, you're one of the elect. You have to obey me. Yeah, I don't know why, but but Brian, you know, that just reminds me, you know, know, like parents in the supermarket and the kids are just like, you know, being dragged along, you know, as you said, kicking and screaming. And so you, you, they are complying, so to speak, with the parent command to come along, let's go. But they're not really complying, (laughs) right? They're just be forcibly, you know, drug out of the store. Interesting analogy there. Yeah. And if they had their way, they'd keep kicking and screaming. Well, uh, exactly. Second <laughs> uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 24, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to wallowing in the mire. Now this is an interesting passage because why would this passage even be here if there was something called perseverance of the saints? It's talking about you know, once again, if we fall away and we refuse to repent on our own, it would be better for us to have never known than to turn from it away from God. So uh, just a, a few examples here, Jeff, where the Bible does make it very clear that we can, in fact, fall away and be eternally lost. Right. And in many ways, that's just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, earlier in the podcast, uh, I mentioned a quote, and let me go return to it for just a moment here. Uh, the uh, the author said, quote, Of course, the Arminian claims the support of Scripture. When one reads the passages which he quotes, one would begin to think that indeed the Arminian has proved his point from the Bible. I cannot possibly mention all of the passages which are quoted. And then he goes on to talk about certain representative ones. Uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of insightful. Because as you dig through the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament, uh, with this view of, you know, is there individual responsibility? Is there conditionality? It just occurs over and over and over again. So let me just sort of just very, very quickly uh, mention, uh, mention uh, uh, just some more. 
Uh, Christians can fall from grace, Galatians 5.4. Christians can stray from the truth, James 5.19. Some Christians will depart from the faith, 1 Timothy 4.1-3, 1 Timothy 6.21, James 5.19 and 20. Christians will fall away from God, 1 Corinthians 10.12, Hebrews 3.12, Hebrews 6.4-8. Unfaithful branches or unfruitful branches in Jesus will be burned, John 15, 1 through 6. Uh, the Apostle P Paul knew he could be lost after being saved. You know, you mentioned 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but also Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Uh, Christians had already turned aside after Satan and fallen away. 1 Timothy 5, 15 and 1 Timothy 6, 21. False prophets and false teachers led some Christians away from God by exploiting them with deceptive words. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 22. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 16, uh, and Acts 20, 28, and 30, or through 30. Christians are admonished to work out their own salvation. Philippians 2, 12, uh, must take heed lest they fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, must endure, not shrink back to destruction. Hebrews 10, 35 through 39, uh, must be nourished in the words of faith and sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10 must not be hardened by sin, having an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, Hebrews 3, 5, 6 through 15, must be diligent to enter heaven, lest they fall away, Hebrews 4, 11. must be diligent to make their calling and election sure, 2 Peter 1, 10, must exercise their senses to discern good and evil, Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14, must pursue holiness, Hebrews 12, 15. There you go. And that's probably uh, a sampling. And if I read through them too quickly, feel free to, you know, pause the podcast, you know, go back. If you can, slow down the speed, write them down, and please investigate what they say versus what we're claiming. Brian, back over to you. Yeah, and it's just a great example of how there's an overwhelming number of passages that talk about, once again, that we can fall away and what we should be doing to prevent that. And so in this final section, we're just going to look at a couple of quotes, a couple of final quotes to wrap this up uh, as far as perseverance of the saints goes as to what their response to these overwhelming number of scriptures are that talk about men can fall. So they know enough of the truth to know you can't really deny what the Bible says. So now they come up with a reason as to why people can in fact fall. So here's one quote, not everyone will persevere. We do not believe that all professed believers and church members will certainly persevere and reach heaven. It is to be feared that many such even plausible pretenders live in name only while they are actually dead. They fall fatally because they never had true grace to fall from. Hmm, interesting. Next quote, once saved, always saved. But the full assurance of hope is this. Let the Holy Spirit once touch this dead heart of mine with his quickening light so that I embrace Christ with the real penitent faith. Then I have the blessed certainty that this God who has begun the good work in me will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That the same divine love will infallibly continue with me and notwithstanding subsequent sins and provocations and will chastise, restore, and uphold me and give me the final victory over sin and death. Uh, 
without trying to be too unkind, that's what we would call a lot of gobbledygook. The Bible doesn't say anything about what they just quoted. And God, once again, miraculously or against our will, chastising and restoring and upholding me. Uh, One final quote, but if one doesn't stick, they were never saved to begin with. The same apostle thus explains the apostasy of final backsliders. 2 Peter 2.22, the sow that was washed returns to her own wallowing in the mire. She is still a sow, still in her nature, though the outer surface washed, but never changed into a lamb, for if she had been, she would never have chosen the mire. So Jeff, I guess what these quotes are trying to say is, well, it's obvious that these people were never one of the elect. They were simply pretenders, and so of course they fell away and weren't restored by God. Yeah, and that is an interesting thing that we'll get into a little bit later on in our questions section as we near the end of our podcast. Because what that seems to assert is you may believe you're saved, you know, go through whatever the process, and live a life in service to God. You know, something comes up that, you know, offends you, you sin, you choose not to repent, and, you know, you turn your back on God. And because of that, you never were saved to begin with. Even though you had the confidence you were saved, you really never did have that. And it's like, whoa, if that's true, then how do you know whether or not you're saved? How do you know if you're one of the elect? Because, you know, you might have gone through the process, but, you know, if you fall away, you never were saved. It's like, how can you have confidence in that kind yeah. of uh, situation? It's just, it's just weird. Yeah, that's, that's an important point because... You know, if you're not one of the elect, wouldn't you like to know it? It's like, well, why bother? I'll just be a wicked person. Or, you know, once again, you make all this effort to serve God, to follow his principles, only to be lost because God, once again, you were not one of the elect, therefore God did not preserve you. That's just unjust, right? I mean, at a base level, that is unjust. And and it's just sad for, for anybody to really put this doctrine forward and suggest that God is a respecter of people. Yeah, which we have verses that say God is not a respecter of persons. (laughs) Right, exactly. So I think we're at the point where now we need to kind of pause and, you know, start to wrap stuff up. Things that we have, you know, studied in our uh, five-part series. So again, we start out with total inherited depravity, with Augustine and Calvin insisting that while Adam was created by God in a state of perfect righteousness— Nevertheless, his sin or the fall brought such consequences on Adam and upon his posterity that man became totally incapable of doing anything good at all of any kind. And of course, one proof text they use is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, uh, quote, when the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, end quote. And of course, we would ask, does this mention the origin of these thoughts? Is this depravity from birth? Is this original sin? No. No. And it's possible that these thoughts were their choice. And it's certainly evident that Noah was not that way. Uh, you know, what does the Bible have to say you know, about this, you know, inherited depravity? Genesis 4, verses 6 through 7. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If, here we go, conditionality, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. There we go. Clearly shows choice 
from the beginning of time to include immediately after the fall. Total inherited depravity, unconditional election. Part two of the two of Calvin believed that man was born dead in sin, again, totally depraved, therefore incapable of responding to God. Therefore, if anyone were to be saved, it was necessary or required for God to choose them personally, directly, for salvation. And that choosing or election was because of God's sovereignty, had to be unconditional, and took place sometime before the world began. Of course, one proof text they use, Ephesians 1, verses 2 through 6, which basically says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, predestined us to adoption according to the good pleasure of his will. Uh, Verse 6, which he has made us accepted in the beloved. And of course, as we saw in the previous podcast, that the truth of God's scheme of redemption, plan of salvation, etc., his choice of whom to save, is certainly based on his sovereign will, but not in the way the Calvinists believe. God didn't have to choose to save anyone, but he did, out of his love and mercy. And he decided to save those who want to be saved, a class of people, not individuals, those who would believe and obey his will, based on their free will. God did not ordain each individual that would be unconditionally saved, but he did ordain or foreordain the class or kind of people who would be saved. And of course, what does the Bible have to say? A good example, Acts 10, uh, verse 34 through 35, Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Now watch it. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. There you go. Hearing and working is prerequisite to acceptance and certainly shows that God shows no partiality or favoritism toward anyone just arbitrarily picking individuals to be saved. So there you go. First two tenets, total inherited depravity, wrong. Unconditional election, wrong. Uh, Brian, any thoughts before you move on to the third one? Yeah, and I think that key passage you just read there in Acts 10, verse 35, you know, in every nation, whoever, that means anyone, right, that fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So that certainly contradicts only a certain number, right? Exactly. Limited atonement is the next study that we went through. And in this one, you might remember that the Calvinist believes that the death of Christ was what we called limited vicarious atonement, or what the Calvinist calls limited vicarious atonement. So this means that Christ was atoned as a substitute, and not for all men, but for his elect people alone. And one of the proof texts that we looked at in that podcast was that, you know, they claim Christ died for many, not all men. And they'll cite Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus says, drink from it, all of you. This is where, by the way, he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, which under this covenant that we live under today, the law of Christ, we are to remember the Lord's death each first day of the week, each Sunday. And so when Jesus was teaching his disciples about this, he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So they like to latch on to that many to claim, well, God only died for many, or Jesus, I should say, only died for many, not for all. Well, what does the Bible say? Uh, One thing that we studied in that podcast is that really the simple answer to this argument is that those who believe Christ's words are the ones 
who will listen to his voice. It is also they who will follow him and not perish. So we know that not every person will believe and obey, as we saw in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. But, you know, it's, it's certainly a far cry from saying that Jesus only died for the elect and none others. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 7, and verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it, or go in by it, excuse me, many who go in by it. Verse 14, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So this is really the distinction Jesus is making, you know, that, that uh, there will be very few that enter into the narrow gate because they do not want to do what God asks them to do. But many will go by that broad path to destruction because they're willing to do what they want to do. Well, this all talks about choice, right? And, and so uh, this concept of Jesus only dying for a few, as we've been saying all along, kind of has to go hand in hand. If you only believe that a few are going to be saved, only a few are unconditionally elected, well, then I guess logically Jesus would have only died for those few because why would he die for people that aren't going to be saved? Anyhow, we moved on next to Irresistible Grace, and that was in our last podcast, where this is the uh, belief according, and in fact, we'll just read a quote from one of their false teachers. In addition to the outward general call to salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be and often is rejected. Whereas the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. By means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. So that quote in and of itself is contradictory. You, you might ask yourself, well, why even have an, a general call to everyone or an external call, as they call it to everyone, if they can't be saved? What would be the point of calling people to Christ? if they're not one of the elect and they can't be saved. To me, it just makes no sense. Why would God do something like that? Well, once again, their assertion is the, the focus is really on this internal call where because God has chosen you to advance, you have no choice but to be drawn to him. That's really what they're saying. And they'll use as a proof text, for instance, John chapter 6, where in verse 37 it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. They then go down to verse 44 in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. And then verse 65, And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it had been granted to him by the Father. Well, that sounds convincing if that's all you looked at was just those three passages and says, Well, okay, you know, Jesus is saying that unless the Father, you know, allows him to be drawn. Well, what does the Bible say? First, it's important for us to remember that the whole point of the gospel is that God decided that men can come by free will and those who learn of him can be saved. So one of the things that we've talked about, Jeff, as we go through our podcast is that often what false teachers will do is they will take one passage like we see here in John chapter 6 or several like verse 37, verse 44, verse 65, and they focus in on these certain statements. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me. Well, We've always talked about, and, and the you know good Bible studying principles say, you must take the entire context 
of the group of passages that are being discussed here to see what's being talked about. And so if you go to John chapter 6, yeah, they like 37, but if you look at verse 35, just two verses before that, it says, he who comes and he who believes. One doesn't come first and then hear and believe later. So they're really changing the meaning of the context. In verse 44, notice it says even in that passage, those who come must be drawn. Mankind is drawn by the message of the gospel. So mankind is convicted. He repents of his sins. He believes. Uh, so those who are given the gospel will come and not be cast out. That's what Jesus is saying. If you accept the truth, you'll be drawn. You can't be drawn without acceptance. They'd like to twist it and say you can't be drawn unless you've been chosen by God. So uh, verse 45, those who come are taught by God. They hear and they learn. So, you know, the, the Calvinist accepts those who are saved are saved by faith in the gospel. Uh, and, and so we agree that they are taught by God through his revealed word. The difference is, of course, they're saying that only the elect are drawn and saved this way and not everyone. So, um, so that's the I in TULIP. And then, of course, we talked about perseverance of the saints today. So, Jeff, before we get into some questions that were submitted on this subject, uh, any other thoughts on this, this whole TULIP principle and, and you know, this, these false doctrines of Calvinism? Well, and I think we've made this point several times. Certainly, each one of these are somewhat logically related to the previous one. I mean, if you, again, start off totally depraved, totally incapable, totally sinful from the moment of conception, etc., then a number of other consequences logically follow from that. But as we've kind of pointed out, you know, the, the start is wrong, and hence if the start is wrong or the, uh, the total, total inheritance of depravity is wrong, then all the rest of these kind of fall by the wayside as being incorrect uh, as well. So it's like they all either have to come together as a package or they all fall apart. Uh, and as we've tried to show, uh, basically they fall apart when you start trying to bring together all that the Bible says on the subject. So once again, you know, we would encourage our listeners, if they haven't, please go back to the uh, previous podcast from the beginning. You know, with with five plus episodes, about an hour each, you know, I know that's a lot of material to go through. But, you know, if you are coming from a Calvinist perspective or a once saved, always saved perspective and want to see what some of the foundational things uh, are underneath the perseverance of the saints with once saved, always saved, we would definitely encourage you to invest the time to go back and listen to those podcasts, look at the scriptures and dig into it. Absolutely. And it's so important if you are worshiping at any church, regardless if it has a Church of Christ as the name or not, to recognize what's being taught. And much like the Bereans, we are told, search the scriptures daily to see if what they were being taught is so. And then, you know, rejecting anything that is contrary to God's will. So, Jeff, I guess that brings us to uh, our last section here we want, where we want to answer some questions that have been submitted uh, related to Calvinism. So the first question, uh, I guess, and specifically perseverance of the saints. But anyhow, the first question for you, Jeff, comes from Dallas. And Dallas asks, I understand we cannot lose our salvation once we have asked Christ into our heart. What about someone that walked the aisle as a child to receive Christ, 
was baptized and served in the church for many years, but then converts to Judaism, renouncing Jesus as the Son of God, and after many years of immersion into Jewish lifestyle, showing no signs of remorse or repentance. Was she never saved, or is she in reality still saved? Hmm. And, you know, you can see the Dallas's, um, you know, understanding or perspective. It's the way she opens up the question. And I really appreciate when people do that, when they submit questions to the website. Oftentimes we have no idea where they're coming from. But for this one, we do. You know, she says, quote, I understand we cannot lose our salvation once we've asked Christ into our heart. Well, there's, there's the start of the problem right there. Because as we've seen today, yes, we can lose our salvation. You know, we always need to strive to be faithful, uh, even though, admittedly, John clearly teaches we will sin from time to time. First John 1, 8 through 10. Brian, you want to read that for us real quick? Yes, here it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Right. Now, the key point is, you know, note carefully that each statement is conditional. It's got that if stuck in there at the beginning, especially verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful just to forgive us of our sins. Now, you know, Dallas said was this person she mentioned who started off, you know, converted to Christianity and then changed to Judaism. And, you know... There's nothing special about changing to Judaism. You know, the person could have changed to Islam or Hinduism or become a non-believer, atheist, skeptic. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, she asked, was she never saved? Or is she really still saved? Uh, and, and my answer in some ways would be, well, neither. You know, if she really obeyed God, to become a saved, forgiven Christian, if she enjoyed salvation, if she could then rejoice in the forgiveness of her sins, just like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, you know, 39, you know, if, if you go through the process, then indeed you can rejoice. And of course, we, we see that in, uh, as I said, in the account of the Ethiopian eunuch, where you know, the eunuch is uh, reading a uh, messianic prophecy from the Old Testament and, and asks Philip, you know, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Side comment, preaching of Jesus includes preaching of baptism. Verse 37, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38, so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. He baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. So having gone through the process, sincerely, um, yes, indeed, you can have rejoicing. And that's... As we said, one of the challenges the Calvinists have with people who go through the process, uh, and admittedly in some cases they go through the wrong process, but they go through the process, declare themselves, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is my personal Savior, and they pray the sinner's prayer, 
and allegedly they have salvation and they're rejoicing, etc. And then years down the road, they fall away and they say, oh, well, I guess they, ne they never were saved to begin with. What? And that's the challenge that Calvinists have, but seldom admit that you can go through that, actually be convinced you're saved, that you are one of God's chosen or elect, but you were never saved in the first place. Yes, you thought you were, but you were wrong. Yeah, that they claim that Calvinism is a, including once saved, always saved, is very comforting and very reassuring because it's all on God. God picked me. God chose me. You know, I became a Christian based on you know his 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 leading through the Holy Spirit. And yeah, I I may be currently living in sin, but you know that's okay because you know at some point God will do something to lead me back to Him. What? And yet, when they're faced with people that outwardly appear to be faithful, who later fall away, for consistency, they have to claim these people are never saved to begin with. And it, it just, again, hurts my head. Brian, any other thoughts on that before I ask you yours? Yeah, it kind of kind of becomes convenient, doesn't it, for them to answer that way. And I think the bottom line is that on the Day of the Judgment, uh, there's going to be a lot of people who believe this false doctrine are going to be very surprised because they accepted it without comparing it to what God's Word actually says. So I got a question for you from Josiah. He writes, in 2 Peter 2, 20-22, there are people described who fit the description of someone who is saved. They found freedom from the corruption of the world through Jesus Christ. Yet, when they are overtaken they receive a worse end. Verse 21 says, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. What does this say about salvation? Can it be lost? Of course, this is a loaded question. I asked that Jesus Christ would come into my heart at the age of seven. I believed that I was saved by grace through faith. However, it's since I was only seven, it seems as if all my worst sins were committed after my salvation. I've struggled with pornography since uh, sophomore year of high school. I found some temporary, temporary freedom this summer, but then in October I relapsed. And of course, he now indicates he's in the uh, third year of college. I'm wondering if I can even know God anymore. Can I still live for him? I know that repentance and deliverance are gifts, but am I doomed because I knew better? Almost like a once saved, always saved, once lost, always lost kind of thing with uh, Brian. Yeah, and I, th I think it illustrates also that when there's a lack of understanding of what the Bible teaches as it relates to, you know, what must we be do to be saved? You know, if you start out at, at seven, and I'm not saying somebody couldn't have some understanding of the scriptures at seven, but I think we would probably all agree they wouldn't understand the biblical principles enough to really know what they're doing. And you notice he says that he asked Jesus to come into his heart. Of course, we realize that many denominations, I guess I could probably only say most denominations, will simply state or, or state that all you have to simply do is, you know, let Jesus into your heart to be saved. So as a result of being taught false doctrine, as a result of not fully understanding the truth, 
it can lead to a lot of false beliefs, but also it can cause confusion, right? Like in this case here, where he's like, look, you know, I'm in a third year of college now, and I look back, and, you know, since I, you know, first accepted Jesus at age seven, now I'm this wicked person, I look at pornography and so on and so forth. Can I still be saved, right? So, you know, am I such a wicked person? Well, I guess, you know, really we want to start by just assuring Josiah and anybody who might think this way to realize that they can absolutely still live for the Lord. You know, God created us in his image, Genesis 1, 27. Um, and because of that, God has, through his word, given us the tools to restore ourselves to his image in which he created us and has given us the power through the word, you know, his word, the Bible, to conquer any lust. And, you know, God made such a, an important promise to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, where he's never going to allow us to be tempted above what we are able. Uh, and so regardless of how sinful we become, we can still be restored. But really, we also need to realize that we can still resist and always, I should say, resist temptation. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as, as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So how do we resist this temptation or any temptation? Well, it really starts with understanding the proper way to respond to that temptation. And that comes through studying and understanding God's will for us. So once we understand what he wants us to do, his expectations for us, then we have to really dedicate our lives to living by the law he has given us. And one of the ways we can get into trouble is understanding some of the truth and, you know, thinking, well, it may be okay to do this because we only have a partial understanding. So just can't emphasize enough. We have to study and learn God's word understand not only his expectations, but how to resist these temptations. So the Bible refers to walking in the Spirit, which means that we live by the law of Christ, the New Testament, which was revealed by the Holy Spirit for mankind. And if we do this, and when we do this, we can overcome the lusts of the flesh. So we see in Galatians chapter 5, 16, Paul says, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, walk by God's word, walk by the understanding you have of God's word, and you will not fulfill the uh, lust of the flesh. It says in verse 17, for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So to answer his original question, you know, can our salvation be lost? Well, as we've been talking about in this series, the answer is absolutely yes. If we sin and do not repent of it, then our salvation can be lost. So in addition to the passage that he cited, 2 Peter chapter 2, you know, verses 20 through 22, uh, Hebrews 3.12, we're told, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So this, along with several passages that we went through in this podcast, clearly teach, right, that we can be lost. Um, but fortunately, God has given us the ability to repent and be restored back to him if we do so. So, um, you know, we, I, I kind of finish up this question uh, or answering this question by saying, you know, it's just critical to realize 
what the Bible says or by how the Bible says that we are saved. So we cannot be saved by simply asking Jesus to come into our heart. We have to follow God's plan of salvation, which, you know, hear the word of the truth, to believe it, to repent of our sins, to confess that Jesus is the Christ, and to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the only way we can be saved, not by simply asking Jesus to come into our heart. And then, you know, once we've been baptized, we're saved. Now, we all will sin after that. And so, and I, you know, I say we will because that's just the reality. We'd like to think we wouldn't sin after we've been baptized, but the reality is at some point in our life until we die, if we live any length of time, well, we're going to sin again. And so when we do that, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 tells us that sin separates us from God. But if we're willing to repent, we're told in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So once again, we can be restored. Our relationship with God can be restored. So anyhow, just you know, hope that uh, Josiah understands what it means to be truly saved how we can restore our relationship to God, and just be convinced that he can overcome the the sinful behaviors by trusting in the Lord and allowing him to guide his life. Yep, good points. Brian, any other closing comments you might have before I uh, suggest some topics at our website for our listeners? No, I think you summarized it well. For if you know, for those of you that are listening to this podcast, if you haven't heard the entire series, just take the time and go back and listen to it. Become aware of these false doctrines. And more importantly, realize what God's word teaches and live by that. Agreed. And like we always do, um, we would encourage our listeners to go to our website, biblequestions.org. There are a lot of topics, a lot of related material uh, for perseverance of the saints, as well as, you know, Calvinism in general um, that you can actually dig into. For instance, under G for grace P for predestination, which also includes the five-part series on God's choices. N for nature of man. Uh, C for Calvinism uh, as a whole. And of course, broadest still, S for salvation. Lots of good material, lots of good scripture references, which indeed we would encourage our listeners to diligently dig into, read, study, and then make proper application. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.